And I think actually, in order to scale successfully and quickly, I do think you've got to have the right people in the right spaces. Welcome back to the Fifth Wave Podcast. I'm Jeffrey Young, Editor-in-Chief of Coffee Business Magazine, Fifth Wave. On the podcast this week, we're bringing you a feature-length interview with Roland Horn, founder and CEO of Watchhouse, a boutique specialty coffee business with 10 locations across London and five new UK sites already in design, plus a flagship store scheduled to open in Manhattan in 2023. We first chatted with Roland back in February 2022 for an episode exploring the UK's specialty coffee scene. But after seeing Watchhouse's remarkable growth and planned entry into the US market, we had to get him back on the show to explore his entrepreneurial vision and growth ambitions for the business. In our conversation, Roland discusses the importance of fostering a unified culture, building a team around him that compensates for his own key weaknesses, and how his risk-on mindset and desire to leave a meaningful legacy has helped to rapidly propel Watchhouse. Welcome, Roland. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, um, I wonder if you could just give us a bit of background on yourself and how you got into coffee. Sure. Um, unconventional way to, to most. I uh, originally Irish, uh, moved to the UK when I was quite young and um, came to London to university. And in my second year of university down here, actually around the corner from the studio we're speaking from today, I, uh, there was a hole in my wall in my house. And um, a friend of mine said, oh, you should get something to put in that wall. And it was a toss up between an aquarium or a rotisserie chicken uh, machine, which I quite fancied the latter. In the end, uh, we couldn't find it, anything to, to work within the space, so it was the aquarium in the end, and um, that was sort of back now in 2004. And then I quite quickly realised that there was an opportunity in doing very high-end, custom-bespoke um, aquariums uh, in, in ultimately sort of high-net-worth individuals and homes and casinos and all that kind of stuff, really. So whilst I'm doing my second-year degree, which was in economics and politics, nothing to do with aquariums, um, I, uh, in my spare time was off in a transit van around London with a good friend of mine, um, designing and installing and fitting and maintaining aquariums and sort of fast forward effectively 10 years. And obviously the business had grown, uh, large by that point. So we were doing some international work and had a number of customers, um, high profile customers, some of which now are, uh, how should we say, not in the UK anymore, I suppose you could say. Um, so, it's, uh, and yeah, we, we would, we ended up, um, you know, going to get into a point where actually I realized I wanted to grow something significant. And really when you're in that kind of business where the business is ultimately you, it's quite hard to scale that really as sort of typical uh, conundrum for most architects. Um, you know, the likes of Norman Foster, et cetera, obviously they, they surpass that by brand ultimately. So around this kind of time, 2013, 14, I was becoming uh, sort of frustrated, I guess, with the inability to grow it significantly. Uh, I was still very key to the business. And I was approached as a, as a silent investor by a friend of mine at the time who had who was already in F&B um, within the cafe space, uh, not within specialty, but um, uh, he had a 
fairly decent food offering. Um, had loads of passion and charisma. The coffee was pretty pretty bad, um, which I've told him a number of times. So he won't mind me saying here either. But um, but but fundamentally, he approached and said, "Listen, um, I've got a space I'm looking at. Would you come in as an investor? Um, if you sort of pay for it, I'll run it." Effectively, this is back in 2013-ish. I agreed. We got about six months out from breaking ground. And he had a change of heart that he wants to focus just on his own business and not go into a JV. So at that point, there was sort of a bit of a, an inflection point for me whereby it was, you know, do I carry on with Aquarium Architecture, which is the name of the business, or do I um, go into this new venture of, of something completely unknown? Um, and I think in the end, I decided, which is always kind of my approach, I think, sort of risk on rather than risk off. I decided to to go for it. And the view was that I could opened the business, uh, found it, obviously utilized my design, I, I guess, customer service skills. Um, and I guess, as I've said it before and I'll say it again, as a frustrated customer, um, I really wanted to sort of right some of the wrongs that I was seeing within within grab-and-go, F&B, within central London. Um, and this is a time before uh, many new entrants had come in. Um, so now the, the the market is much more sophisticated and and that's fantastic. But we we kind of went out with this vision of just trying to challenge something that we felt needed to be challenged. Um, so at that point in 2014, uh, I decided to go away for 12 months, um, left both businesses in the capable hands of uh, management in Watchhouse and my business partner in Aquarium Architecture and went and saw various uh, coffee coffee um, establishments in Asia, principally in Asia and Korea and Japan particularly, and came back and decided actually that sort of coffee was calling as it were. And uh, so I exited um, my aquarium design business and went full in and watch us in 20, effectively 2017. 2017. And, and tell us about the business now, how many outlets and... Yeah, um, so we refer to them as houses, um, although we still regularly have to check ourselves when we call them sites or cafes, um, but nevertheless, it's houses. Um, so we're now at uh, 10 open houses in, in central London. Um, we have a further five um, locations in central London being designed and built as we speak. Um, we will have uh, two further ones open by Christmas um, in Marleybone and in Covent Garden. Um and then we have locations in Notting Hill, um, Westbourne Grove, uh, Fenchurch Street. And then we've got a further one opening up in Bath, which is our first national one. Um, rather selfishly, I, I live in, in, in Bristol, um, so I'm not a million miles away from, from the operation and know the fantastic opportunity that the Bath presents the brand. And also like a, an operational stress, um, which I kind of say to my team, you know, it's akin to going to the gym. Like you always come away feeling a bit sore, but that burn that you know really is quite nice. And I think we need to kind of really embrace that and not be scared of it. And I think we're going to talk a lot about today potentially about um, the 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 bigger jump into the pond, uh, for want of a pun, really is um, we 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 are opening up in New York in 2023, uh, which is obviously a particularly uh, exciting, but of course um, uh, operational testing time for our business. But you know we're really relishing the opportunity. Well, let's take the moment to directly address that question. The US, New York, why? So in essence, um, we have, uh, I think one of the things that I've been very protected about over the years, and we've made plenty of mistakes, by the way, like I, I say that every time I get asked about Watch House, you know, um, we're always learning, we're always making mistakes and, and learning. But one of the things I think we did get right very early on, and I have to say, credit as well to James Freeman um, from Blue Bottle, particularly on this, because I remember when we were kind of in that 2015-16 moment, sort of double-clicking on what it means to be in a specialty properly, um, I was really 
it really resonated with me, his vision of protecting brand and how he said, allegedly said goodbye to 30 to 40% of his wholesale customers um, to protect his brand. And I think that really, again, coming from that world of, you know, being a frustrated aquarium architect where I knew that brand was what made Norman Foster leave, you know, it enabled him to kind of step away from Foster's architecture. I kind of realized that brand is everything. And of course, then hearing like Warren Buffett talking and people, all the et cetera, talking about the significance of brand. So we were very protective over our brand and we are still very protective over our brand and not nauseously, you know, like we are very embracing of different things and different people. We're not, um, it's one of the things I really disliked about specialty. It's one of the things I still dislike about specialty is that, um, you know, we need to embrace people's differences and not, you know, there isn't just one size fits all, you know, and I think that's a real, it's a real lazy way of people looking at specialty and I really push against it hard. Yeah, but but in essence, um, because of our brand and because we've been protective over it, it means that we get opportunities presented to us where maybe they don't go to other people unnecessarily. So in this one instance, and I can't obviously go into the commercials of, of the deals we spoke about off air, but um, you know, fundamentally we were you know we were approached by um, an existing um, landlord um, who said, "Listen, we really like what you're doing in London. We think you know we just think it's fantastic, and we want to bring you to." New York and put you in one of our well, if our most iconic property just off Fifth Avenue and and you know the primus of prime in, in in New York and you know there is the milk and honey um, analogy of people thinking the, the streets always paved with that I'm um, I do have a slight fascination with the city like I know you know ninety nine percent of the population do um, I've I've invested um, there I own a small property there in the West Village and um, I so I know it. Um, to a certain degree, um, but I, um, so I've always had this vision, and I did it with the aquarium business as well. We we um, we were part of the design team to design Michael Bloomberg's aquariums when he moved from his uh, big office into the new office in Manhattan. So there's always this kind of like, and there is a bit of ego in that. I'm not going to sort of lie here. I'm going to be straight about it. There is a course like if you can make it there, it's important, um, and it really says that we, the test of your brand and. Um, so yeah, this opportunity um, has come in front of us. You know, we're going to lean on lean on an open door and and, and take that on. Um, rather classically, and flipping back to London here in the sort of London bus analogy, um, we're also in conversation with another partner um, who's more property led, but they also are in hospitality who also want to work with us uh, on a similar basis because they love the brand and what they're doing and what we're doing here in London. They are looking at um, they've got locations in. In New York, but also um, Chicago, Houston, Philly, um, San Fran, um, you know, various places. So, so it, it's always going to be hard going there. We said this off air, but I always knew it was going to be difficult going there. But like, I set up Watch House in 2013, not knowing anything about specialty, right? And we've now built something which I think is definitely up there as one of the best um, in the UK. Um, and listen, like the next frontier is the next frontier and we might entirely blow up. And if that happens, then that happens. I just think you've got to be confident about failure and just know that if that happens, then, you know, the worst thing is to not have tried as far as I'm concerned. So, um, but obviously we're going to go out there with the success in the eyes. That's what we want to do. You're definitely not short of ambition, which is one of the real sort of reasons why I just thought, I've got to get this guy back on air here. And, and really sort of understand your sort of um, entrepreneurial sort of motivations. And so, so what drives you? What makes you, you know, you're already doing really well here in London and okay, there's an opportunity in New York, but it's not just opening, you know, 
one or two stores, you know, it's, it's five on the boil and also taking on a big project in New York at the same time as well. What, what makes you want to <laughs> grow so fast? Is there a business reason for that or is it more sort of a personal sort of drive? Um, it's really interesting. There's obviously something very deep and Freudian in the answer, no doubt, and which we probably don't have time to go into all of that. But I, I, I think... Um, well, sit back on the couch. We'll, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I can do that. Um, I don't know if you have it. I mean, I, I met you last time I was here and I went away thinking that guy's a true entrepreneur. And I, I don't and I mean this with respect to you, obviously you're in the room, but you don't meet many people that have that just like frenetic... Um, people who just really are itchy to do stuff mm. all the time. Mm. And and I, I feel the same. Like yeah. I see the same thing when I'm talking to you. I feel exactly the same way. And I, I my if I was being honest, like I feel genuinely the fear of not doing anything significant is just so, so depressing. I just think that if we can't go and just do something that we can look back on and go, we really made a difference. And I'm not saying you have to go and have, you know, you don't need to go and be Howard Schultz. You don't need to go and do that. You can go and open a social enterprise, which will make a huge difference to X amount of people's lives. But for me, I just wanted to go and something, do something that was truly significant. And there, there is an element of affirmation in it. And I don't know, like, I was pretty, pretty bad at school. I didn't really perform very well. Um... You know, I sort of matured later in, in life and obviously ended up going to good universities and I'm still studying at the moment, a part-time. Um, wow. And so, yeah, I just think, I just want to, I just want some significance in what I'm doing. And and I've obviously got three kids now and um, I, I, I listened to a, I've actually man, luckily managed to get this guy to come and speak at our university and um, next month, a guy called Scott Galloway, who's a professor of marketing at NYU Stern Business School, but he's just a celebrity um, academic basically in the US but he has this saying which I absolutely love that you've got a waterfall of preference of success and the first thing you want to do is succeed obviously the second thing you want to do is fail fast but what you want to do and avoid at all costs is failing slowly and to me what I don't want to be I'm 37 years old right now is I don't want to be in my late 40s early 50s have not made an impact and to have felt like I have wasted an opportunity that I had in front of me. And it like what we're doing right now is is hard. Like I people come up to me all the time and they kind of go, Oh, I don't know how you do what you're doing. And and it's obviously lovely that they say that, but actually it's not just like it's not, if I'm being brutally frank with you, we're sitting on the couch now, is uh, it, 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 you know, things some things have to give. So I don't see my kids as much as I should do. I'm flying today to Cape Town for two weeks um, as part of my, my studying. Um, I then go to New York uh, in the middle of November to go off and, and and continue the conversations over there. And then I see my kids in about you know three and a half, four weeks' time. Um, I don't go to the gym as much as we should. I mean, I know that's probably true of most people in life, but um, there's always things that, get, that, that sort of go by the wayside. But um, but I just want to be, I just want some significance and I want to know that I've looked back and done something well, and I and if it blows up, then it blows up, and you know, obviously that's not the intention. But I'm just ready for that if that happens, you know. Great. Well, what are you most proud of so far? Um, I think maybe this will resonate with you as well. But I think as an entrepreneur, you kind of that's a hard question to always answer because you never really feel proud of anything. You always feel like things are always half cooked, and um, I should say half baked in my situation. But yeah, I, I, I mean, I sometimes reference. Uh, customer from our original watch house in Bermondsey Street um, who effectively 
came in with her son when he was six months old and effectively the son is now going off to secondary school almost or he's prepping to go there obviously and you know she's kind of charted his life with hashtags and we see that and it's still him coming into the watch house and having the same product he had when he did eight years ago and it's like actually you realize that you become part of people's life routine and you know our teams are the the my colleagues at watch house they they all see these customers more than these customers see their own parents you know like and that's that's truly amazing and and it is if you really deduce it down like it's quite a spiritual thing and i'm not by any means a spiritual type character but i do think that there is something magical about the interaction which is why covid which i know we're not going to talk about too much about today but it's one of the things that was quite difficult for us because that human engagement was just so important to to the energy and the, the spirituality of of what we're trying to achieve and trying to do that through a d2c through an app through a you know even social media is just it's just not the same because you don't get reciprocity in the way you should and the way in the way we want um so yeah, um, I think what I'm proud of fundamentally, you know, we have um, you know 220 um, um, people working at, um, at at Watch House with at the moment, which is amazing. Um, I've been quite, you know, impressed, very impressed, in fact, with how how the teams have really rallied over the last couple of years. I think we're ne- we're now getting to a point where, you know, you start getting people kind of going, oh, it's another chain, and and I get that, I do understand. The hesitation towards that and i said to you earlier like you know we we make mistakes like we're, we're like anybody you know um but the difference is is that we have a genuine desire to make sure that we write them we write any wrongs that may happen or if there's any things that we've fallen down on we will we will go after those things like there's no tomorrow um and uh i think what i'm really proud about is that we've created a culture which is still in the making like it is definitely still in the making it's not perfect we've had people leave us and go to other places because they haven't felt the love that they wanted um as well so we have to take those learnings and which we have but i think i'm really proud of the culture we've 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 got and we've got i've got a team of people who believe in what we're trying to achieve with watch house and and that's amazing so there's a number of things that i'm proud of but i would say the team is overall the the, re- the thing that i'm most proud of Moving from your own success to success of the business, what would you say are the, the key elements that you've managed to and your team have managed to achieve? You know, what, what has made you so successful so quickly? So uh, you'll probably hear from my chat, I'm obviously referencing various people in business here, but they say about Mark Zuckerberg that like what he's amazing at. I mean, like if you look at these guys, you know, Zuckerberg and I forget the guy who owns Snapchat, or obviously uh, Evan Spiegel, like they're great at something. They're not great at everything. And what Zuckerberg allegedly is very good at is he's great at creating a great team around him. And something that I really resonated with me because I'm horrendous at dealing with people. And no doubt some people in this podcast will, who have maybe worked with me will know that I'm quite, you know, I want things done properly and I, you know, I expect them to be done properly. And um, when they're not done properly, I can be quite frustrated by that. So, um, but I've, I've very much sort of realized my own, you know, I'll, I'll call them weaknesses. I know people will say there is opportunity, which is the new sort of mm-hmm. way of speaking about it. But it is my weakness. Like I, I have a few in my, in my, you know, I'm not great when it comes to sort of um, structure. Like I'm, I'm not in the sort of day-to-day machinations of how a business runs. I'm more about vision, strategy, um, and and how that the global things for our business work. I actually read a great book um, called um, Get a Grip. I forget the author. I'm reading it at the moment. I would encourage all of you, if you are listening to this, to you know, go go onto Audible or or by all means have a look at this book. It's called Get a Grip. But anyway, they they talk about this exact issue where there's a small business and there's two co-owners of the business in this mythical business. Um one of them is the day-to-day, 
operates the systems, runs the weekly meetings, does the professional development plans, all that stuff. And the other person is kind of like sitting on the, in the corner of the room and comes up with like a little genius moment and then disappears off for 10 more minutes and comes back and all the rest of it. And and like that it also really resonated with me. And I'm not saying I'm genius at all, but what I mean is my area of expertise is very much focused towards the business development, the business growth, and obviously the financial elements of our business, dealing with critical um, partners, landlords, um, and key counterparties. You know, that's my skill set. And I think actually, in order to scale successfully and quickly, I do think you've got to have the right people in the right spaces. So the book talks about the wrong people in the wrong seats the right person in the wrong seat, yeah. you know, et cetera. And so what I, what we need to try and do is get people, right person in the right seat to ensure that we can scale successfully. And I think that is the difference. And of course, I think where we've been perhaps naive over the years is that in order to genuinely, in my opinion, to genuinely scale specialty, and I don't genuinely don't believe, and I'll say this, I don't think this has been done in the UK yet. Um, I do think that Blue Bottle did a very good job at this. And I do think there are other people, Verve and a few others that I, I could pull off, um, pull out of my hat. But, but, um, but I think that truly scale specialty. And by the way, I don't care about Blue Bottle's seven hundred million dollar valuation. People always, people love to talk about, oh, everyone's following Blue Bottle because of this unicorn thing that they got. And I get that. Like, of course, it's an amazing figure that they achieved. And let's not ignore that that is a, a very attractive thing for anyone in business, right? But actually, I think what's amazing about what they did was that they were able to scale whilst also improving as they scaled. And I think that in order, where I think we were naive was that we were we were quite slow at scaling um, our business. And okay, you can't discount effectively three years of COVID. But we were slow at doing that, and what that means is, like, if you do, if you generally want to build out the back end of your business to ensure that you are scaling properly, you you're kind of in that sort of Everest death zone, uh, which is kind of why I reference it as like you've kind of got to get to a, you've got to get your engine built, and you've got to scale the business to the point where actually the business then supports the ultimate engine, and while the engine's running, if you ain't scaling, you're obviously then burning burning your uh, your capital, and I think for us, like we obviously COVID was quite a tricky period, clearly, but I think it became quite obvious to me. I was like, we either, we forego the tenants of our business whereby we do start being poorer on culture, poorer on standards, or, you know, we don't put as much time into design. We don't care about the things that we've really cared about as we were as we were a smaller operation, or we, we invest in those things now and we scale in a more, um, yeah, in a, in a more rapid way fundamentally, but in a sustainable way. Like I don't want to, you know, just open 25 shops in a year uh, without naming any particular brand, of course. Um, but uh, th- that isn't me. That isn't Watch House, and that's not what I want us to be. I want us to be something that's been built on a, on a foundation of authenticity because I think that is what's the difference between a good business and a, and, a, and a bad business. I think ones that lack authenticity, they're a flash in the pan and they're gone very quickly. The ones that have authenticity, um, shout out to Monmouth as a great example of this. Like, they'll last forever. Barry Brothers and Rudd uh, for the, the, the wine merchants, another really good example. Um, you know, these the authenticity piece is very, very important. Um, and that's that's the big challenge when it comes to scaling any any of these things. But I do think that we're gonna do it. And I do think that we should, you know, the blue bottles of this world have done a, a very, very good job doing that as well. You mentioned sort of investing to to scale. What are the main investments that an operator would need to make to be able to do that? Culture. 
it's hundred percent culture, and I think this is something that we have. You know, you kind of have this. The best analogy is, I know people always say it. It is a room of spinning plates. You've got marketing on one corner shouting for X. You've got operations on the other side shouting for Y. You've got your people operations shouting for whatever. Everyone needs oxygen. Everyone needs it. But I think when we're at the point we're at now, you're now getting the trolls. You're now getting the negative voices. Oh, it's another chain. Oh, what are watch us all about? Oh, you know, I remember the first one, it was great. And now we're on number 10. And what does it all mean? All the rest of it. Um, I've said to you before, and I'll say it on air, like, I think it's lazy. I think you, you can't tie everybody with the same brush. I understand why voices come from that area, because there have been many brands in the food and beverage um, sector that have come from there. But I'm not going to make an apology for them. Um, I'm going to do what we can do for ourselves. And But I do think we're now at a point whereby... You know, I can walk into a watch house location and I, I remember I had it recently actually. I walked into a watch house location and uh, uh, it, was a, it was a person who was new starter. They'd been with us for a week. They'd gone through the induction, but they'd obviously, obviously I put probably put on a few more pounds or whatever it was since the photo in the induction. Um, I can say that. Um, but they came up to me and, and I walked into one of the rooms and they said, no, no, so you can't go in there. This is back of house. And I said, oh no, I'm, I'm Roland. I'm, I'm, oh, I'm sorry about that. My point about that is that you didn't have that when you had three locations. Like you, everyone knew who you were. You were intrinsically part of that culture. Whereas now you're in that point where it, it actually, how do you, how do you ensure that the culture of business is still geared towards what your north star is? And even just communicating what that north star is is really, really tricky. So, as I said, I'm studying at the moment for a part-time MBA, and um, ironically, um, I had to fight my way to get into this course. But um, I chose an, an, an audit, which is not a assessed one um, it's called corporate turnaround um, and I chose an elective which is one that's assessed which is called strategy and innovation and I sat in both of them they're both on the same day one in the morning one in the afternoon and of course sat down the corporate turnaround they said well just so everyone knows this is the non-assessed one your assessment is going to be on Starbucks and the and specialty coffee and of course immediately <laughs> I put my hand up and said I want to flip and do this obviously as an assessed uh, elective rather than an audit so I managed to get there in the end but what's fascinating is that the, the, I'm doing this assessment at the moment talking about Starbucks change in 2007, 2008 and actually what Howard Schultz did in terms of like his senior team, how he changed the conversation, how he, he really wanted to go out and go and say, right, we're losing our way here. Like Dunkin' Donuts are pulling, pulling us apart. We've got people all over the place that are trying to attack us. We need to really dig out who we are. And, it, and I think, so I'm working my way through that, 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 that um, piece of work at the moment. But my, I see a lot of those things in us. Like, what does our culture look like as we get to sort of 15 locations in London, one in Bath, which feels like far enough away from, you know, from the head office or support office, as we refer to it internally. Um, and then there's New York. And it's like, how does that culturally work? So I think the plan for New York really for us is, you know, I believe that there needs to be a constellation of locations which really have their own ecosystem. And um, so our plan for New York is to sort of get to five um, within 18 to 24 months. So there is that economies of scale and scope for us. Um, and then I think in terms of the west of England, um, again, you know, Bath is obviously a bit of a bit of an outlier, but I think we are looking at areas in, in the UK where we feel like it makes sense. So you know, I've still got a romanticised view about going back to Dublin and opening one in, in, in Dublin, uh, even though the rents are still ridiculous. Um, but um, and uh, but in, in the rest of obviously um, the UK rather than Ireland. But in in the UK, we're looking at um, uh, you know uh, obviously Bristol, which is where I am based at the moment. Edinburgh, we're looking at space there at the moment. Exeter, um, Oxford, Cambridge. Um, 
the areas that you would tra- traditionally see a, a watch house brand within. We know we're not going to open two or three hundred watch houses in in the UK. That's not what we're about. Um, I don't want it to be about that because it doesn't feel authentic. You know. Yeah. And so investing in culture, absolute key. Mm-hmm. How do you invest in culture? What we have done. And we did this during COVID. We sort of sat down and went through our objectives and key results um, framework, our OKRs, as it's referred to. Again, if people don't know OKRs, Google it. It's a very famous framework used by tech businesses as they were scaling, most famously Microsoft um, and Google. But effectively, it's a very clear, you know, traditional sort of pyramid way up to the top. Like, what's your, where, where are you going? What's the, what's the purpose of living? Maslow's hierarchy. Exactly. Exactly that. And then as it comes down, how do we actually disseminate that down into like that, what that person's doing over here and how that actually feeds into the overall goal? And I think that's quite important because it gives people the notion of like what we're all working towards. I have to say, I have to say we are still working on refining that to work within specialty because it's fine having it within a tech business where it's all, you know, remote and all the rest of it. But actually, if you're in this bricks and mortar world, and we're very proud to be in that bricks and mortar world, we're not trying to pretend to become the next D2C brand that, you know, it's not what we're trying to do. Um, we will have that part of our business and we do have that part of our business, but we're talking 10 to 20% of our revenue, no more. Um, and um, I think, I think in terms of investing in culture, like the OKR framework was very important. I think, you know, silly little things, which I'm, I mean, I've used this word a few times today about authenticity. I think one of the things that some brands do, and I almost jars me a bit is when they use like jargon or the sort of, there's a lexicon within businesses where, um, everyone's called a certain thing. Um, I mean, I remember Harrison Hall had hooligans, right? And it, and I think Gales has breadheads as an example. Like, and to me, I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't love that because I feel I respect it, but I don't love it because I don't. It just feels a bit cheesy. But actually, that's something that I've come to realise is that I need to get away, get out of the conversation to a certain degree because actually, the the sort of slightly American, dare I say, it, approach towards culture and a bit more a bit more gimmicky a bit more cheesy a bit more like you know something that we can all hang our hat on is actually quite important because it sort of gives that sort of um bonding agent throughout the business where people can really hang their hat on and what who we are as a brand now you know you don't see people from a brand that i often reference and people will see obviously similarities no doubt aesop which is a amazing brand you don't see them running around saying we're aesopians or you know talking about aesop's fable or whatever it might be there is a there's a, a language there that's that's permeates and you just know which is amazing that's kind of like the golden space that you want to be in but for our business if we're being brutally honest like we we are a we're a fun young and you know it's sadly still but transient um sector and i think we have to embrace culture in a way which is engaging to to the people that we you know the the colleagues that we work with it can't all be you know serious you know middle middle aged middle class um conversation like and and that's so we so we as a brand and as a group are making sure that we are developing that culture so that it is more inclusive and when i say inclusive i mean inclusive to happiness not towards um our dni policies which are important as well but we're talking about ensuring that we have this fun environment where people really want to and they feel proud they feel genuinely proud about saying this and i work for watch house and I think that's something that we really want to try and lean into. And, we, and it, it takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of investment. We've got to hire a lot of people within our people function. And to do that, um, we've just hired, um, she actually starts, it hasn't really been um, released yet. So I won't say the name, but we've just hired a managing director to come and work with us as of January, um, which is a, a really important thing. Because again, coming back to that point about your own elements of 
you know, what I'm good at and what I'm bad at. I think, you know, having someone who comes in and goes, right, Monday, we're going to do the same thing every every Monday, every Tuesday, every Wednesday, every Thursday, and, and continually improve that system, keep that machine running. I need that. Um, whereas I think on the sort of visionary side is where I'm keep me locked up in a box thinking about things and dealing with landlords probably is the best place for me. Well, I mean, you you look like such a controlled business. I mean, it, obviously everything seems to be done with perfection, whether it's your packaging, whether it's the store design. So you're, you're obviously achieving <laughs> that sort of control. Obviously, it's probably a lot you know under the under the water of the iceberg. There's probably a lot of <laughs> yeah spinning to yeah. to make that happen. Yeah, there, 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 there is. And there is. I think I, I do feel, you know, when I go into watch houses, inevitably, I don't enjoy their experience because <laughs> I go in and you, you, that's what's incumbent upon us as, as entrepreneurs that we have to, I think we should always feel a little bit unhappy about where we're at because it drives us forward. So, so, but, but because of that level of, I guess, unhappiness or uh, restlessness, I suppose I should say, it means that we're continuously looking to try and improve. And, um, you know, our latest um, house that opened in Mayfair Watch House Hanover is an example where you walk in, you're going, oh, wow, this is this is pretty amazing. But I still want to improve the coffee vials because I'm not happy with the blue color, the blue color caps, or I'm not happy with point of sale over here because it's not inclusive enough. Because if someone comes in who doesn't know specialty, then what if you just put the name of the farm up there? It doesn't mean anything to them if they have no idea who Maurizio Chatar is, for example. So it's that element of sort of I guess, empathy and trying to sort of bring it back to that central starting point for me, which was I was a frustrated customer of F&B within London. I loved coffee, but I wasn't a coffee person. That wasn't where I came from. And I'm very happy to put my hand up and say that now. It's not my area of expertise, um, but it is very much my, you know, I'm an intermediate person within coffee, I suppose you could say. Um, And I think we need more of that broad church conversation within this space and less aversion towards people who aren't from behind the bar um or been in competitions and world competitions we need to we need to be more inclusive about it and i think that that then resonates through to customers as well because then they start feeling they don't feel as off put when they come into a specialty space okay i'm gonna interest of time now i'm gonna sort of put some quick fire questions at you and uh, i you know sort of more like some one-liners in terms of um some of your learnings or tips for anyone who you know is wanting to open a, you know whether it's a single coffee shop or or a few what essential tech must uh you put into any let's say small chain um of outlets do you think or tech stack wise i would say absolutely vital you have a very very good internet connection so we made the mistake of having you know just running a 30 pound a month line uh we found out very quickly that having dedicated proper internet line is very important in addition to that i would strongly advise card only which is we we, we were actually one of the first movers to that in 2017 within london we got a lot of heat for it actually at the time um but i would massively advise doing that so it streamlines that element i would ensure that if you go down the route of having an app you need to make sure that it's a, it's a there's a very very good connectivity to the epos um your electronic point of sale system effectively your till and um, so that there, there's no connectivity problems between those two pieces of software i would also advise hugely upon having a compliance piece of software in place so that when you're at eho not if but when your eho officer comes knocking saying i'm here to grade your establishment you can pull out your ipad and say here's the last three months worth of temperature fridge uh, fridge temperatures uh thank you very much and here's your five star and off you go um I would also advise strongly on having um, a inventory auditing, uh, inventory um, 
a piece of software whereby um, uh, you can actually ensure that you're ordering from your suppliers directly, your wastage is managed through that system as well, um, and so that there is this sort of complete system of tracking your inventory. Ultimately, you can't get your gross profit margin without seeing that. Um, and then finally, uh, obviously, um, and very importantly, um, the sort of the labour and the and the scheduling side. So, um, ensuring that you've got a fit for purpose. Um, uh, HR tech platform, which will feed into your accounting software, which also feeds out to your staff in terms of rotoring. So you've got this whole package. Um, and, and I think very, very finally, we, we um, I haven't mentioned any names of brands there, but by all means, um, if people want any more detail, just please just find me on LinkedIn, Roland Horn, and I'll happily help you. Um, and I mean that. Um, the uh, the the other big thing actually is NetSuite Oracle that we 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 use, which is um, obviously Oracle huge, but uh, it's a very very good accounting system for businesses that want to grow. I mean, if you're one of one to three size operator, you, you'd be in zero all day long. But for us, NetSuite Oracle was a more scalable option as we got bigger. Wonderful. Next tip, biggest tip you give to someone who's going to sign up on a location. What's the what do you look for in a location? My strong advice is there are three there are three KPIs that we we try and um, look for. Firstly, it's the pound per square foot that you're willing to spend on the space, right? And all these things are kind of a bit arbitrary, but basically, you want to set yourself a threshold whereby your revenue, um, your rent to revenue, is no more than ten percent. So, if you're just for easy numbers saying five hundred thousand pounds a year is going to be your revenue, approximately ten thousand pounds a week, that means you should be spending no more than. A thousand pounds or um, fifty grand a year on your um, on your uh, on your rent, and um, finally, uh, sorry, secondly, our other KPI then is the mean average income in the area. So we can all open up a small cafe in a space outside a tube station in you know uh, in an area of um, of the UK where it's there's a lot of people. But if the average income in that area is twenty five thousand pounds a year, they're not going to come and spend three fifty on a flat white. Um, and then finally. Footfall. So it's not just about mean income, but actually you need to have people walking past your front door. So uh, we regularly get office spaces in Mayfair, for example, prior to us opening our current one, where, you know, yes, everyone's very wealthy, but they're not there on a Saturday and Sunday, or they're not there on a Monday and a Friday now because of COVID. So it's just those three variables of rent per square foot, um, footfall, and mean average income of the area. Those three things, if you tick all three, you tend to, you tend to perform quite well. Mm. Your latest site in Hanover Square, to me, it seems like a little hidden down a little passion's way. Does that have the footfall that you need? Yeah, so um, it, it was one where we were kind of standing there in COVID, literally in COVID on the construction site. I was thinking, geez, how is, is this going to make sense? And it's worth saying that we've got a very supportive landlord there and that we constructed a deal whereby it was part capex um, by the landlord, which is great. Um, and obviously it's a turnover um, deal as well we've got there. But actually Crossrail just opened on this Monday, just gone, which has seen a huge... Uh, ah. uh, in, yeah, so the, yeah, exactly. The Bond Street, um, Bond Street Crossrail, Crossrail were actually in the same building as it. Uh, on the other corner, um, but actually you've got you know KKR, one of the biggest private equity firms, right there. They're coming back to the office, and I think their figures came out um, this week saying that seventy five percent of the officers were back um, uh, on this Thursday, just gone because I think people are seeing possible recession coming, and actually it bumps up on seats. People are thinking, well, I'm, I'm easier out the door, as it were. So it's interesting. It's it's getting and it's, it's performed well already. It's performing well. Great people tips to make sure you've got a harmonious team. What what is the uh, biggest tip you'd give to an owner yeah. operator? I would say that be present and you know listen. I'm, I'm by no means the 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 authority on this piece. It's the bit that I find the hardest, right? Like for the reasons we've already discussed today. But I would say what I've learnt is the small incidental conversations with your team, the smallest thing 
makes a huge difference to that kind of notion feeling of 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 being of you know one team one dream and i think it's very easy just to not do that um and just kind of go oh you know they're busy i'll speak to them next time and you might not be back there for another couple of weeks so you kind of lose that element of um, sort of harmonious feel so i would say that the biggest thing really is as a leader is to get in there you know show deference be humble you know and and really engage with those with those people um and and i think as well like what we didn't do as a business we did it organically when we started we had three sites we had a um, steph greg who's uh, she's on maternity leave she's back in january she's kind of our spirit animal for our business really she's like a natural beautiful person like she really is um but of course then like as we started to scale it's actually well you can't rely on a person's great humanity to look after your business like what's the structure behind all of those things what you know now we have awards now we have competition teams now we have the ability for teams to actually communicate directly through channels to us in terms of any issues that they may have etc so we've got better structure about people now but it is something that needs to be improved upon uh, at our business but any business that's starting out just think about the fact what what's what structures do you think you will need if you have 10 of your cafes like you know that's kind of a good way of thinking from day one great one final question just to put you on the spot what is the most impressive quick fix or something that you're able to implement or an idea that came that thought wow and it just all of a sudden had a meaningful impact yeah it, it, it's not mine it's it's um it's ryan garrick who i know you know um he's our head of coffee but he um we often refer to modern coffee as our is our um so how we refer to what we do as a business which effectively is the four tenants of you know great product great places great people um and ultimately having a sustainable business that can actually function as well in terms of being being profitable um but fundamentally, what we felt with coffee was that it, it was too myopic. It was too narrow-minded in terms of just talking about the quality of the bean. So we really wanted to sort of broaden that out and really make it more modern. So really, the, his he wrote a thesis, which I've, I've saved and I printed and got it on a wall, in which he was like, this is what, what Charles said, this is modern coffee. And I think that really kind of, that resonated internally a lot. Now we've got to communicate that externally, of course, which is the challenge. Uh, but that was a big thing. That's more of a philosophical mm-hmm. thing. I would say on a more technical logistical um, way, I would say the, imp- the implementation of Slack was a huge benefit to our business because what you tend to find as a small business owner, and some of you will probably know this yourselves, is you sort of fall into the WhatsApp world where your life and your business start getting pulled all together into one. And actually um, having Slack and the ability to actually go, right, well, that's there and I can turn it off when I need to, or I can set it, you know, that was a big, it sounds silly really saying this, but it really made a difference to the culture of the business having this thing that was there but didn't always have to be there if you weren't working. Well, sounds like one of those great investments in culture. Yeah, exactly. Roland, thanks for joining us here today on Fifth Wave. Appreciate that, thanks. And that's all for this week's Fifth Wave podcast. Please subscribe to the Fifth Wave wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this show, please recommend us to a friend or colleague. And if you want to stay well informed, visit worldcoffeeportal.com to get access to all the latest global coffee news, including the weekly coffee dose, our newsletter collecting all the big coffee news stories of the week. Link is in the show notes. This episode was produced in the one and only Serendipity Studios in glorious Camden, North London. It was produced by myself, Jeffrey Young, Hannah Heath, James Harper of Filter Productions, and sound engineering by Chris Bristow. 
And this week's song, in collaboration with the Coffee Music Project, is South African artist and songwriter Yolanda Mutasasera with a beautiful song, Don't Give Up. And until next time, stay safe, stay passionate, and stay caffeinated. Don't you give up on me I know it's hard to stay